Well, I want you to imagine uh, for a moment a teenager uh, who gets uh, taken to the doctor. They've got terribly bad skin. Uh, they're very overweight. They're not sleeping very well. Uh, and they seem to be kind of constantly ill and constantly, uh, we're well, shall we, under the doctor. Don't you hear that phrase anymore, do you, under the doctor? Uh, uh, but that's what they are. They go from one kind of cold, not proper flu, but, you know, one kind of man flu, worse. Uh, and they go from one thing to another, always. So eventually the doctor starts looking at them, the doctor listens to them, and doctor asks different things, and, and eventually starts talking about diet. And, uh, and it, it's quite clear from the answers that the, 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 the teenager gives that they've got quite a limited diet, and they eat the same thing every day. What do you have? Well, for break, breakfast, always bacon. Okay. For lunch, chicken. What do we have for tea? Well, sometimes prawn cocktail, sometimes beef. What about supper, they say? You know, a lot of similar meat there. What about supper? Well, if I eat supper, it's always salt and vinegar. The doctor says, salt and vinegar? He says, yeah, salt and vinegar crisps. I have a bacon crisps for breakfast and I have chicken crisps for lunch. And for tea, I have either prawn cocktail or beef, and, and then sometimes salt and vinegar. And the doctor says, you only eat crisps. You are deficient in your diet. You need to get much more variety to get all the nutrients, to get the things that you need as a teenager to grow properly. No wonder you're a bit ill and a bit sickly and everything else. No wonder you're not sleeping. And your breath probably stinks, but anyway. That's the question tonight. Why do we look at passages like Isaiah 42 last week and Isaiah 49? There's a great reason for that. Our spiritual life and our spiritual health is dependent, isn't it, upon our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the whole story. Uh, it's... Only part of our spiritual health and part of our spiritual journey and part of our spiritual life. But it is a significant part, isn't it? If he is our saviour, if he is our Lord, if we are growing in, as the word was it, growing in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, Growing in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we're going to grow as followers of Christ. We need to know him. We need to know who he is. We need to know what he's done. The person and the work, as it's known, of the Lord Jesus. And if we limit our knowledge of Christ to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we're kind of having a diet of crisps. Very tasty. Very nice. And I probably should stop the illustration there because it falls out. I mean, the Gospels are great, aren't they? And they're given to us for our good. But that's not the full story of the Lord Jesus. And if our spiritual experience and knowledge of the Lord Jesus is just based on the four Gospels, then our spiritual life will very quickly become deficient. All of Scripture is given to us for our instruction, correction, and everything else, to make us the people of God that God would have us to be. And we need to see the full picture of Jesus given to us in the full scriptures. Otherwise, we are like, if you've ever seen um, catchphrase on TV, and you get the, like, the final kind of catchphrase picture, 
and it's kind of covered up and and sometimes you'll get you kind of need to get all the squares gone to get what the picture is saying and the phrase it's saying. If you just have kind of one or two of the little squares um, missing so that you can see a bit of the picture, well, you don't get what the picture is. It's like having a few pieces of the jigsaw. You can't even tell what the picture is if you've only got a few pieces of the jigsaw. And that's why, which is a very long introduction of saying, that we're looking at last week the servant songs in uh, Isaiah to see what they teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week, as we were looking from Isaiah 42 uh, about uh, the servant who would come, we saw what he will be like, that he would be gentle as well as being patient with us, especially when we, he, we need it. But that is his character. He is gentle and he is patient. We saw very importantly that he was not weak and inactive. He was strong yet gentle and active yet patient. And uh, we need to study Isaiah to see these things don't come in isolation. And we also as well, we don't just see that he's gentle and patient. We need the rest of the Bible to see that he is active and strong as well. You see, they're all part of the big picture of who the Messiah, the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ is. So, having said that, let's look now at the second servant song, which is found in Isaiah 49. And uh, this one is, uh, when we come to the, the last one, God willing, in two weeks' time, I mean, that is the suffering servant, the end of Isaiah 52 and 53, so obviously Jesus, and speaks so obviously about the cross, and, and it's so easy to see it. We've got to do a bit more digging tonight in Isaiah 49. It's not quite so obvious, and the truths here are a little bit more complicated. So, let's have a look at Isaiah 49. And the first thing we want to ask is this, or say is this, who says what? That's the thing. Who says what to you? Because it is a bit complicated. Starts off in verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this. Before I was born, the Lord called me. So straight away, you've got someone speaking. Straight away. Uh, and it's God's servant here who is speaking in the first five verses. This is God's servant speaking. I was born, before I was born, verse 1, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword, etc. He made me in. Uh, verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant. So we can see here that God says to me, the servant is saying, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. And I said, so there's a conversation going on between the servant and God. Then in verse 6, we have the voice of the servant, uh, of God, sorry. That's right, yes, God. So the first five verses, this is the servant of God speaking. From verse 6, now we have the voice of God. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Israel. So we have your God's servant speaking in the first five verses. And then in verse 6, God is speaking to his servant. So, who says what? What, are the, what is being said here? What are we learning here about the coming Messiah? The servant. 
who will be given the name Jesus at his birth. We get an illusion of that, don't we? Verse 1, from my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. So he has given the name Jesus when he is born, when he comes into the world. Uh, as he appears in the Old Testament, as he appears to, to Abraham and Moses, he's not given the name Jesus, is he? He is this angel of the Lord or the servant of the Lord. He's given different titles, but when he's born, he is given the, the human name, if I can put it that way, Jesus. He's named. You see that straight away in, in verse 1. Verse 2, what's he like? Well, my mouth will be like a sharpened sword. Like a sword. What does a sword do? Divide. He's the word. We sing, don't we? The word of God the Father. He is the word. He is the one who comes and we, and we know what God is like. Why? Because of the word. Because the word became flesh. But he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Here is one who pierces whose word is sharp. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. Arrows can do real damage, can't they? That's what he's like. What's he like? Verse 3, he's a servant. Before the Lord, before, uh, the Lord called me from my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. So he's clearly great, but you are my servant. Verse 3. So that's what we see here, first of all, who says what. We've got the, the servant speaking, and as we'll see in a few moments, we've got God speaking as well. But you get an interesting thing in verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel. So let's stop there and ask another question. A question to ask is this, is Israel the servant because his name is there you are my servant israel in whom i will display my splendor but i said so who is this israel who is speaking it's clearly the servant but he's given the name israel so the question is is israel the servant who is the servant israel why use the name israel why is the servant needed etc etc one question kind of leads to another so why is this name israel being used here and we need to go back to what we were looking at, kind of, or started to look at last week. We were thinking of the servant of the Lord in chapter 42. And in the chapters that follow chapter 42, what you have here is the question of Israel, the nation now, the people of God, and, and their purpose or their, their service of the Lord or their worship of the Lord or just being the Lord's people, they are clearly... Uh, in chapters, kind of the end of chapter 42 and following, it is clear that they are unfit for purpose. And it becomes more and more acute as the chapters go on. It is clear the, and remember now that the people of God, the Israelites, they're under God's judgment. They are uh, being transported to Babylon. They are there in slavery. And uh, the message of hope is going out that you're going to come back, that there's going to be a remnant. But still, as that message of hope is given, that a remnant will return from Babylon, at the same time, in kind of parallel, it is clear that the remnant of Israel, though that hope is given to them, at the same time, they're being told, 
you're not good enough. You're not. Not good enough to be the servant of God. Not fit for purpose. And the tension that is going on here through these chapters between the servant who will come and Israel not being fit for purpose as, as the people of God kind of grows and grows. And that tension is not resolved by the remnant and by the remnant of God's people coming back from Babylon. And it wouldn't be these improved people coming back from and these purified people coming back from Babylon. They are not the answer. The answer is not the remnant. The, 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 the answer is not an improvement in Israel. The answer is not the crowning of a new king or a better king. What Israel needs is the emergence of the servant of the Lord. Because this servant will do what Israel should have done. And we see it in verse 6. Too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of J Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I'll also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, Israel, Old Testament Israel, was supposed to be a light for the world, a light for the Gentiles. They were supposed to show what God was like through the way that they lived, through the way that they worshipped God. They were supposed to reflect the, the light of God. But they fail. Time after time, even under the best kings, they fail, don't they? Even under King David, even David fails and fails kind of spectacularly. Uh, I was uh, preaching Sunday night because of all that's happened in the last week with the passing of the Queen. So I was preaching Sunday night on the arrival of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon. And, uh, you know, Solomon, she comes to him because of his wisdom and his riches and he's great. And then within a chapter or two, in a few verses, he's a kind of a disaster. That's what the Israelites are like. That's what we're like because of sin. And as Israel fails and has failed, so the servant will succeed. In his person and work, he epitomizes what Israel should have been. And in verse 7, we are told he will succeed. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. He will succeed. People will bow down before him. They will. But he's called here in verse 3, Israel. You are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. So again, why that? And there's kind of a paradox here. And, and you see it really. I mean, who was Jesus' first mission field? He is born in Jerusalem and it is to the Jews he goes first, isn't he? And the church, the early church, we have to say before the missionary expansion in the book of Acts, the early church is Jerusalem-based. It is Israel. And the paradox, in a sense, is that Israel is sent to Israel. Jesus is sent into Israel. And we've got to remember as well, when we, we, when we think of the name Israel, we kind of limit it because of the century in which we live and we have the nation of Israel you know, around today. And so we equate Israel here with Israel 
today. Who is Israel? Well, at one time, there was a man called Israel, wasn't there? Jacob is given the name Israel. That's his name given to him by God because he struggled with God and prevailed. That's why he's got the name Israel. Struggle with God, prevailed. Well, the nation of Israel no longer prevailed and it needs the Son of God to come as the servant of God to be the Israel that they needed and to be the Israel that we all need. And the truth is, is that Israel as a kind of a nation and Judah, the people are restored. The remnant does come back, albeit just a remnant, but they do return from Babylon, but they never are as they should have been, ever, because of sin. So is Israel the servant? Well, he is, but his name is Jesus. Now, the third thing we see is here, we see a verse to comfort. We do. See it in verse 4. It's kind of, again, an unusual verse when we're thinking about the Lord's anointed, when we're thinking about the servant of the Lord. But I said, again, the voice of the servant, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. There's real despondency there, isn't there? It kind of grips you. And you look at the despondency there and you say, and ask the question, well, does that fit with the life of the Lord Jesus? Were there any incidents in the Gospels that kind of fit with this? And we've got to say, well, not particularly. We don't see kind of an incident where we see, you know, that he's laboring in vain or spending his strength for nothing at all. But we also know, don't we, from Hebrews 4.15, that Jesus was tempted or tested in all points, but without sin. And so he has things coming into his life. He gets attacked, we know, by Satan, of course, in the wilderness. But he's attacked at other times as well, isn't he? The Garden of Gethsemane, as well as other times. And he is tested in all this way. And it does appear, doesn't it, as he... Uh, goes certainly to the Garden of Gethsemane and, and between there and his crucifixion, it appears, if you were speaking humanly, that he's laboured in vain. I mean, those three years of ministry, he's healed the sick and made the blind to see and, and everything else that he's done and he's preached to the multitudes and he's fed the 5,000 and 3,000 and everything else. And, and where's the disciples? I mean, even the 12 have gone. Even one of the 12 have betrayed him. And he would look in his, you know, in, in the, during the crucifixion and just before, he would say, well, has he laboured in vain? He has. Has he spent all his strength for nothing at all? I mean, where is the revolution? Where is the church? Where is the upheaval that the Messiah should bring? Where are his followers? They've run. Now, why do I say that's a verse to comfort as we look that the Lord Jesus feels that he's here, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. I think this is a verse to comfort us because the Lord Jesus knows what it is to struggle with life. He has been tested in all points, yet without sin. And he knows how you struggle. And he knows what it is to have apparent failure, yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. 
And you look at the cross. I mean, we look at the cross with 2,000 years of church history. We look back at the cross with the book of Acts in mind. And we say, what incredible success. But go back on Easter Saturday and you say, well, there's no success there at all. So when you struggle and when I struggle, we have one who can sympathize. We, want, we have one who knows what it is. That there seems to be apparent failure, yet it is successes with the Lord. Why? Well, otherwise we'd boast in our own strength, wouldn't we? But he knows. There's a difference, isn't there, between knowing and knowing. I can know what it is to, to describe to you what agoraphobia may feel like and give you the symptoms and what happens to people if they have agoraphobia. I can read all the textbooks. I can meet people and talk to them and interview them and counsel them and everything else. And I understand and I can say, I know. But I don't know like they know. There's knowing, isn't there? And there's knowing. When we are struggling, Jesus knows what it is to struggle. Literally in verse 4, for emptiness I have toiled. There's an old hymn that puts it this way. Those who fain would serve thee best are conscious most of wrong within. Those who would serve thee best, serve the Lord best, are conscious of all the sin. Conscious of their own position before God. Conscious of their own failure and incompetence and weakness. And feel we can't be useful to God. But of course that's when we are useful. Because we're not relying upon our own strength then but upon his. And when we feel out of our depth. When we're looking for, you know, for the, kind of the life raft to hold on to. Well the power of the spirit and the power of Christ is that life raft that we need to hang on to. When we're out of our depth. Our problem is we're too comfortable so often, aren't we? And feel we can swim and can keep our heads above water. When the reality is we're dependent upon Christ. Well, the last thing that we see here is we see the light of the world. We have here the light of the world. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. What's Jesus' testimony? I am the light of Israel, the light of Jerusalem or Judah, the light for the 12 disciples, 11, get rid of Judas. I'm the light of the world, he says. Imagine being kept in the dark, literally in the dark. Sometimes you can go places, can't you? If you've ever been to Mallorca, you can go to the caves of Drach. It's great. It's like going to Danarog of caves and you kind of walk. And eventually they kind of sit you down and there's a big stream and a kind of a underground pond, basically, at the end. But they sit you all down in this kind of natural amphitheatre. And then once everyone is sat down, they turn the lights off and you are in the dark. I mean, you're way underground. There is no light at all. There probably is now because of mobile phones. But when I went, we didn't have mobile phones. So long ago it was. Uh, so there's no light at all. And then, it's great, you get a little boat, a uh, little rowing boat comes with somebody playing Vivaldi or something, uh, on, a, on a, that's a violin, on a violin, and the boat comes down, there's a little candle, that's wonderful, because you've been in the dark and then light comes. You feel isolated in the dark, don't you? 
damage is done to children when they're kept in the dark for too long. We don't like being in the dark. We don't like being kept in the dark when everyone else knows a secret that we don't. We don't like darkness in any shape or form. We like to be enlightened. What this passage reminds us tonight that Jesus is a light for the world. He is such a great servant. Of course he is. He's the son of God. But in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he is so great that it is too small a thing to be constricted to a little part of the Middle East. He's a light for the whole world. And that's the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. He enlightens us because he is the way, the life, the life and the, he is the way, the truth and the life. But he is the truth, isn't he? And truth enlightens. Truth brings us light. And that's what he is. And we see it again in verse 6. It is too small a thing. Jesus is just too great. His glory must be seen around the world. His light must be seen around the world. And the point is this, as light brings illumination and understanding and comfort and heat, it warms us as well. Light also brings security, doesn't it? It brings security to us. You know, we used to get, you don't seem to see them so much anymore, anyway, but security lights. Everyone says, or the police always used to say, much better than an alarm. When light goes off, people run. Alarm goes off, nobody's bats an eyelid unless it keeps going and everyone twitches the curtains and see whose car it is or whatever. But when the light goes off, people run, don't they? Why? Because their deeds are seen, exposed. Paul reminds us in Acts 17 that people are groping in the dark, in the darkness. And we've got the gospel light, haven't we? The light of the world. And we've got to tell others about him how great he is, the truth about him. Because truth is, our problem is, is we, even as followers of Christ, we try to find light in all kinds of places, in ourselves, our identities, our pleasures and families and relationships and materialism. But there's only one true light. There's only one light for the world, a light for the Gentiles. There's only one who will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And his name is Jesus. And you see through the rest of the chapter, that's why we read further on into, into verse 16. You can, remember, you can see here God's faithfulness. He does remember. God always remembers his people. He does remember the re remnant in Babylon. Christ does come. We read there in verse 8 about the covenant. To be a covenant for the people. Those great promises fulfilled in Christ. And then in verses 15, we're reminded by God, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Of course she can't. Of course she can't. Have no compassion on the child she has born? Of course she can't. Though she may forget, she could have issues. There could be problems. Could be health problems, mental health problems. Though she may forget, she's not. But even if she could, God says, I will not forget you. And then in verse 16, again, we've got a messianic verse. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Even in the midst of this uh, reminder that God is going to restore the people of God, there's that foretelling uh, of the one, the servant who's going to come, 
whose names are engraved on the palms of his hand. That's the love that Christ has for us. That's how he goes to the cross for us. That's why, that's what he's like as the light of the world. He goes and he goes to the cross. And our names engraved on his palms. Does he forget us? He never forgets us. Whether we're spiritually on the mountain top, there's a long way to fall then, isn't there? Whether we're in the valleys of despair or of grief, wherever we are, God remembers his people. The servant has come and he's the light of the world.